happy Sabbath, everybody. I need to say thank you to our worship team. Very, very beautiful music this morning. Appreciate it so very much. Thank you. It's nice to see all of you, and uh, glad that you're here to escape the heat, to worship together, to cool down, to, um, to have communion. It's wonderful. Why did you come to church today? <laughs> you win. There are many good reasons, none as good as that, but uh, possibly you came to worship through music, to pray or hear a sermon, to buy an enchilada dinner. That's the second best reason. <laughs> Maybe you've just programmed yourself to be here in church on Sabbath mornings, or you have been invited by friends and you're visiting us today. All good reasons. But I certainly hope that one of the reasons you've come to church today is to experience the presence of God in a very real way. And church can often help us to do that. As you likely know, we've been traveling through the book of Psalms recently, a collection of songs and poems from over 2,500 years ago that tell us that following God back then is actually quite similar to following God now. And when we think back to that time period, how did those people experience the presence of God? Well, similarly, there were many good ways. Prayer, of course, and singing. Eating was often a spiritual experience in ancient Palestine. But perhaps the most powerful method of experiencing the presence of God for the people during the days of the Psalms was to go to the temple. The story can be taken all the way back to Jacob. When Jacob flees from his brother, ends up in the desert, he is in such desperation he uses a stone for a pillow. And so it's no surprise that he doesn't have the greatest night's sleep and he has a dream where he sees a ladder coming from heaven down to earth and he hears God tell him, I will be with you always. And so Jacob realizes that God is in this place. And he christens it Bethel, house of God. A statement that God is willing to come down and be here with his people. Later, when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, much of the account of the Exodus is consumed with minute details about a portable tent that God ordains for the purpose of, in his own words, dwelling with us. He longs to be with his people. And this portable tent reaches its culmination through Solomon's grand temple in Jerusalem, the center of the world, Mount Zion, the intersection between heaven and earth where God bridges the gap so that again, he can be with us. And this temple became the center of life for the Jewish people. They often turned towards it in prayer. Think about Daniel opening up his windows towards Jerusalem in Daniel 6. Daily, they go to the courtyard to offer their sacrifices, to receive forgiveness and be directed towards the mercies of God. Priests would go into the holy place to conduct rituals that would honor God. And once a year, the high priests would enter into the most holy place where they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Going behind the curtain 
on the day of atonement so that all of Judah can receive grace. Now, three times a year, they would take pilgrimages to the temple. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And these were joyous festivals. And when they would make this pilgrimage, they were not simply going up to a beautiful place of worship. The Jewish people were going to heaven where God resided. Now, the first temple was built by Solomon, stood for over 300 years before it was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. You can read about the heartbreak and devastation this causes them in uh, Jeremiah and in Lamentations. You can imagine how heartbreaking it was to see the home of God be destroyed. But eventually the Jews are taken out of exile, brought back home, and they rebuild the temple. And the second temple takes nearly 50 years to build, and the complex in total covers over 30 acres, becomes one of the ancient wonders of the world, and once again... God and his presence can be found atop Mount Zion, and so can God's people. And in the short time we have today, we will be looking together at Psalm 84, an account of experiencing God's presence atop that mountain. And as we do that, I would like to say that if this series through the Psalms has led you to read more of the Psalms than before, then it has likely led to moments where you didn't understand all of what you were reading. Sometimes maybe you didn't understand it at all. And I just want to say loud and clear, that is okay. I feel like we've entered into an era where it's seen as a sign of weakness to say about anything I don't understand. When in fact, that's often a sign of strength. It takes a certain amount of wisdom to admit one's own inability to understand something. And especially when it comes to scripture, we shouldn't expect to immediately understand every line perfectly. Instead, we just give it our best. We read it in the entire context. We pray. We maybe ask a friend's perspective. And we keep reading. There are many portions of the Psalms I don't totally grasp. I just try my best. And so don't be discouraged if, whether it be through the Psalms or any other part of Scripture, you don't fully understand something. Don't let that stop you from continuing to read this book. And remember that saying, you know, I don't really get it can sometimes be the wisest words we can speak. Now, that being said, let me perfectly explain Psalm 84 to you, okay? (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. Uh, Psalm 84. Now, this has a very clear setting for us. This psalm takes place in the context of a journey to the temple. And you can imagine the writer with a backpack on, a chair in his hand, binoculars around his neck, gladly leading the way to the holy city. Perhaps he sings a song about marching to Zion, whatever a song like that would sound like. And and when his kids ask how much longer, he turns around gladly and he says, well, just about three more Sabbath days journey and we'll be there. The psalm is easily broken down into three beatitudes or blessings. The first one is in verse four, but it concludes what is in verse three. So it reads like this. How lovely is your dwelling place or tabernacle, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. 
So the first blessing goes to those who make the journey. Those who desire God, those who long to experience his presence. And when I read that, I'm reminded of the words that Jeremiah wrote down for God. When God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Or the words of the Apostle James that he penned many years after that when he writes, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And seeking the divine in the midst of the domestic can be challenging at times. There's no shame in admitting that. But it does bring us joy. And even joy to the smallest sparrow who we know God has his eye upon. Man, I wish we had a song about that too, right? The first blessing concludes its passage there. But the second blessing in Psalm 84 begins it. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. So as our rider marches on with their beach chair and binoculars, there is another family who stumbles along towards the same destination. They pass through the valley of Baca, likely not a literal place, a figurative one that is translated as valley of weeping. Those seeking God's presence may very well be doing so while also facing incredible difficulties in their lives. Stress, confusion, loss, heartache. Some say the valley of Baca refers to a dry, arid, lonely valley a place in life all of us here know all too well. And yet, the writer says that even in the midst of this dry valley, even in the midst of a moment when God doesn't seem quite as close, even in the midst of a moment when the word isn't as alive as before, even in the midst of a moment where even praying seems like a near possibility, even when life has reached that dry valley, that we can experience joyful expectation at the same time as we travel to be in the presence of a God who can take that dry valley and bring down rain, a God who can part the seas, a God who can quench thirst from a rock, a God who can lead us beside still waters. As they pass through the valley, the psalmist writes, they make it a spring. The autumn rain covers it with pools. And so pilgrims journeying to the temple are not spared of hardship. But their continued willingness to come before God's presence is enough to get them to take another step forward and another step forward and another step forward. Finally, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And we'll start in verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I was working on this sermon this week at one of the Starbucks near Loma Linda University when I stepped outside to take a call. And as soon as I finished the call, I hung up and I looked at my phone and on my phone was a picture of myself taking that call. 
so I knew somebody was watching me. Pretty normal, happens all the time. Uh, (laughs) Sure enough, in the Chipotle next door were Andrew and Alana Ciccarelli, two of my youth. And so I walked in to say hi, and then I put two and two together. The boss has sent his children to check up on why I was at a Starbucks during a work day. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, turns out they were actually just there to meet friends. Said hi, went back, got a little bit more work done. As I was getting ready to leave, went back to Chipotle to get some dinner to go. And I stood in line, and the guy in front of me says, Hey, I noticed you have your Bible. I thought, man, is this another one of John's spies? What is going on right now? And he, he asked me, you know, about what church I went to and, and why, uh, why I had the Bible. And, and I told him that I was getting ready to, to preach a sermon. And this got him really, really excited. He said, tell me what you're preaching on. Meanwhile, the Chipotle uh, uh, person behind the counter is trying to get his attention. You know, uh, pinto or black beans? You know, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, pinto. Um, um, what, what, oh, it's about a psalm. Okay, what psalm? What psalm is it? Uh, fajitas? Oh, yeah, yeah, fajitas. Did David write the psalm? And I'm trying to balance these conversations. And, uh, and he was so excited. And I said, you know, it's um, Psalm 84, and it's about experiencing God's presence by journeying to the temple. And it has that famous line, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love that song. And I found out from him, because he had a shirt on that said The Rock, that he went to that large church that was just a few blocks away. And so I asked him, are you, are you a pastor as well? And he said, no, no, um, actually, I, I work there. I, I set up chairs. I get things ready. I, I watch over the facility. I make thing, sure things run smoothly. And I'm like, so, like a doorkeeper? He's like, yeah. <laughs> and I just remember how excited he was. I remember him saying, I am so excited about what God, is. this is in the line getting our, our meal. I am so excited about what God is doing in my life right now. And I am so happy that I've met you today. And I, I knew this excitement was true. It was palpable. Because he bought me my meal. He paid for it. I mean, his excitement tasted like a free Chipotle meal. It was good. <laughs> And I just remember just how enthusiastic he was about the role God had, had given him. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And I know that we have many wonderful doorkeepers here at Calamasa Church who take care of this place and help things run smoothly. And you don't do it for public praise or adoration. You do it because you want to serve God. And you want to contribute to our community here. But even though you don't do it for upfront praise, please know that whether you're a deacon or an elder, a Sabbath school leader, you do lights, audio, video, projection, you greet or you set up chairs or you prepare potluck or help with maintenance or one of the many, many, many other wonderful things, to all of our amazing doorkeepers here, thank you for helping to take care of our family. Psalm 84 says, The Lord bestows favor and honor and withholds no good to those whose walk is blameless. And then the psalm closes with, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Well, all this may sound nice, but we have a bit of a problem. The second temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and it's never been rebuilt. So no temple for us. That's unfortunate, right? Let's finish up by going to John chapter 2. And as we flip to John 2, let's set the scene. 
It's not a pretty one. We enter into somewhat of a violent commotion. Jesus is driving out the temple's merchants, furious over their greed. I once said to a class of students, I said, now Jesus is not throwing a temper tantrum here. And one student spoke up and said, ooh, he's throwing a temple tantrum? I gave that kid an A, and I wasn't even his teacher. (laughs) So we enter into this scene, and Jesus having a temple tantrum for good reason. And the Jews ask Jesus what sign gives him the authority to do such things, and he responds to them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They say, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up again in three days? And then here it is, verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Church, we may not have the temple sitting atop Jerusalem today, but we do have the new temple. The intersection of heaven and earth where God bridges the gap so that he can dwell with us. Where we can find the forgiveness of sin and where we see the sure sign of God's desire to be with his people. John chapter 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some translations that were dwelt, tabernacled, literally came and templed with us. And so Jesus has become the temple. He's our, our passion for him, for Jesus, should rival the Israelites' passion for that building. And today we're celebrating communion, a remembrance of the new covenant when Jesus became the meeting place of God, when Jesus became our sacrificial lamb, when Jesus stood as our high priest to provide atonement. And communion is an opportunity to remember that we no longer need to come to the temple because the temple has come to us. So why did you come to church today? It is my hope that you came to experience worship, community, and communion together, but also to experience the presence of God by journeying together to Jesus. And so now we are going to begin that service by partaking in the ordinance of humility, foot washing, as Jesus did with his disciples. And some basic instructions. The women can participate in the music room, the men in the junior room, and couples and families can go to the fellowship hall. Or, if you like, you are welcome to stay in the sanctuary and have prayer. We will um, reconvene and partake in the emblems to finish our service. God bless you. Now may you go confident and assured in the provision, love, and grace of Jesus, now and forevermore. God bless you.